0: Welcome to Technically Minded, a podcast brought to you by Credera. We're a Global Boutique Consultancy and here we discuss hot topics in business and tech with our colleagues in an effort to share our collective insights with you. My name is Nile Donnelly and I'm a senior consultant in our Modern Marketing Transformation team at Credera UK and I'm your host for today's episode. So today's podcast is gonna be covering what we expect to be the hot technology trends of 2023. And I'm really happy to be joined today by our Credera UK CTO, Marius Rubin and John Jacobs, one of our partners from Credera US so thank you very much for being here today i really really appreciate it would you both please give me a brief hello and a little bit of what you two do at credera if you start with john
1: great thanks Niall. Uh, hi my name is john jacobs i'm a partner with credera us about 23 year career in technology and software development um, at this point and my responsibilities these days are focused on client delivery around uh, large technology programs and technology transformation. Thanks for having me here today. And how about you, Marius?
2: Hi, um, I'm Marius Rubin. I am the CTO for Credera in the UK. What that means is that I look after all our fabulous technologists, be they engineers or architects, And I also look after all of the technology we at Crideria use to keep our business running. I also do a fair bit of work advising our various clients on what technologies they should be thinking about, what they should be adopting and how they should be using the
0: technologies they have successfully. Also great to be here. Absolutely. Happy to have you both. Sounds like I'm in great company today for today's topic And obviously, we're very quickly heading to the end of the year. So it's a great time to talk about what we expect is going to be really hot tech topics in 2023. And we'll also dive into a little bit about what you said, Marius, last year for the same topic for the hot tech trends of 2022 as well. So we're going to be spending this pointing out all the ways I was wrong. (laughs) We'll have to see. You know, you might have got it exactly right, Marius. Or you can listen to the other podcast, of course, to see if we uh, are fair to ourselves. Exactly. All of our listeners can make their own minds up about whether how right you were. Cool. So the way that we I'm gonna do this, if that's okay, is we've did some research into what we believe are gonna be the hot tech trends of 2023. And I'm gonna pose them to you guys, and you just let me know what well, where do you land on it. Do you think it's gonna be hot in 2023 or do you think it's a bit overhyped? So if we kick off, I will push the first one to you, John, if that's okay. So we believe that cloud native or serverless will be the default choice for new development in 2023. What do you think of that?
1: I think it's a great one to, to to start off the conversation with. So I think, you know, serverless technology and what we're calling cloud native, right, has been really growing over the last several years. And I can't think of a project that we've started recently, Greenfield Project, that hasn't included some element of, of cloud native technologies, right, whether that's containers and kubernetes or functions or you know some other element of the cloud platforms that the that you know the the major vendors are making major investments in these days i think the concept is if you're not at least considering using these things and leveraging them to help accelerate your your delivery and improve quality etc you're starting off in legacy mode
2: it's really interesting i think we see quite a lot of organizations now you know to your point john there's always going to be a bit of it in the delivery and then there's some variation in you know how much with you know some of our customers going all in for their complete platform serverless top to bottom and others taking a more balanced approach because they're constrained by what they've had before or equally because dare I say it serverless isn't always the right answer but I can't think of a single case where it's you know to your point not sure it's not been part of something anywhere really I don't know if you have you got any customers where you're not seeing them adopt it or you've seen a kind of shift away even.
1: So I think it is the kind of thing that, you know, to your point, you don't have to go all in 100%, right, with serverless technology, et cetera, right? You can make incremental changes to a technology stack and start heading in that direction and start getting value quickly, right? Whether it's writing functions, whether it's getting to more of a um, an event-based, an event-driven architecture, right, which I think a lot of those tools really do support. Um, I think it can help accelerate in that way without without necessarily making, you know, a, f- a full-blown, hey, we've got a We've we've got to reinvent the entire wheel type of mentality.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think one thing that you know wheel reinvention aspect definitely something that I think is a risk when you've got particularly those serverless tools, which are so powerful and so easy to kind of compose and assemble. It it could sometimes lead to doing things that way because you can, and dare I say it, overlooking. Maybe more monolithic or COTS options to do a similar job, but certainly for a lot of very standard stuff, web facing stuff, it's kind of a question of why not almost, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I agree. I think it, 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 you know, the the caution, the cautionary tale to this is that it does add, it does tend to add complexity, and you better be ready for that, right? And I can think of a number of times where we've recommended, hey, maybe backing off on some more distributed techniques because maybe maybe the organization isn't ready for it they're not quite to that level of maturity yet and, or maybe they just don't have the need from a scale standpoint from a uh, from an elasticity of demand standpoint so yeah there's a lot of factors there i think that are that are important to consider before you just jump all in
0: and, and just on that john with regards to kind of the maturity of the client is that something that you assess when kind of beginning to work with a new client whether you know, to to find out whether they're at a point where they can make use of a certain level of serverless if that makes sense
1: yeah, yeah, I think it's something that we that, that, that's important to do regardless of the type of technology, the specific tools that you're that you're looking at, right? You want to select architectures, approaches, and 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 stacks that are reasonable, right, for the organization to 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 live with and to maintain long term, right? If it's too much of a change, if it's too much adoption of change and, and, and new technologies and new approaches, I think that adds a ton of risk, right, to to an engagement. So there's a balance there, right? Where can we push? Where can we where can we get more modern? Where can we, you know, use tools and techniques like cloud native, serverless technology to drive an outcome? Right. We want to get to market faster. Or we want to reduce our uh, the wait time that's you know that it's going to take us to launch a new product or a new capability. I think those are all factors that you've that you've got to consider and then balance that risk.
2: At risk of um, revisiting old hits and telling everyone, please do listen to the previous podcast. It was an interesting thing. We spent a bit of time talking about was that almost you know, your question, Nile, about would you assess it? Well, different parts of an organisation might have different appetites for different capabilities. So we, t- you know, I think last year we spent a bit of time talking about how you almost end up with two-speed or multi-speed, with some areas very mature and adopting it. And I think John's comment about outcomes is really important: is where are the bits where it makes sense, and where can you do it effectively, and which parts of a business are mature enough to do it? And it it may not even be the case that. You need or want all parts of business to be that mature. There may just not be the value, but if you've got something which is really burning and important, and where you can measure what you're going to get back for that investment, it might make sense and sort of almost becoming comfortable with that range of maturity you might have.
1: That's really good. I think again, like focusing on the business outcomes or understanding the business outcomes uh, helps you make the right decision there. Right. So I can think of a client, a client that I'm working with currently who you know um, wanted to launch a program that they thought was going to was going to result in a one to two percent revenue lift, right? This is a very large organization, and so, you know, that's an area where I think you can you can go more aggressive, right? We can take on more risk. We can even, you know, maybe introduce some some instability at times, right, in the platform because there's so much value at the end of the rainbow, right? Once we get something launched, so you've got to, again, there's a cost benefit analysis there that I think is super important.
0: That actually leads us on really nicely to the next one. So Marius, I'm gonna pass the next question to you if that's okay. So portfolios will shift resources from transformational to cost saving initiatives.
2: Yeah, so this is this is kind of topical, really. It's kind of obvious
0: statement. The world
2: we're living in is is not the same as the world we were in when we had this similar conversation last year. Obviously, it's different in some ways. I think last this year we're doing things remote by choice, but I was doing it from home because we were still a pandemic. I think we even had hoped to do more podcasts recording in the office. And so clearly that, that's changed, but there's you know, broader instability, economic uncertainty. And I, I think a trend we've noted in a number of places for quite large programs of work with, you know, to use John's phrase, lots of value at the end of the rainbow. People are kind of wanting that ra- rainbow to be pretty small, and they're shifting what they're spending their time on to activities which are Potentially less transformational, but will save them cost in the short term. Because that, you know, is a fairly standard cyclical thing, that in a sense. But what I think is quite interesting is is kind of where it's coming and where organizations are with quite significant investment in cloud resources, cloud compute, and modern technology, but possibly not always the financial management capability that follows it. So I think a sort of interesting consequence of that is. I don't find the idea of moving to cost-saving initiatives kind of necessary necessarily a bad thing. Actually, what some of the stuff that drives really great architectures and really great systems is people trying to be efficient with how they build them. So I think one of the things we'll see is cost-saving initiatives that aren't just about cutting costs, it's about achieving the same result in an efficient way and in the most appropriate way for these technology sets, but also arguably more use of tooling that probably somewhere down the line as something to get so more sophisticated usage of the pricing capability that you get in clouds the ability to use transient compute that is costed lower at funny times of the day and night even shifts to different processor architectures so using arm-based processors in the cloud rather than intel because it's cheaper and uh, i guess additionally it's probably good news for companies um, like ProsperOps who have tooling that lets you cost manage in aws you know, it's a good time for them because actually some of that tooling is really valuable and delivers immediate, you know, immediate benefits to a client that you can then use to then do more transformation. And we've
0: seen quite a few clients adopting a number of products like that, um, Spot instant and others. And what about you, John? Do you feel the same? Have you seen resources shifting away from transformation and more towards cost saving over in the US as well?
1: I think it's a very, it's a very interesting topic and, you know, timely to Marius's point about where we are, just where we are in the world, right, coming out of a pandemic, right, coming out of a time when companies had to innovate extremely quickly to survive, right? We had a, a a number of clients who were in that mode, right? We have to drive more digital sales. We have to, you know, invest really, really heavily in e-commerce, more so than we thought we were going to in a very, very rapid way. So I think that, again, that was survival, right? We had to, you know, we had to do those things. We had to take those steps. And it wasn't always done in the most efficient way at the time in 2020, 2021, which was totally fine, right? We had a goal that we had to meet, right? We had to again, keep the trains running or keep the business afloat. So I'm quite interested in in the idea of it may not be a bad time at all to just, you know, take a bit of a step back and look at where can we drive some more efficiency, right? Where can we uh, find some cost savings, right? Are, are there some things we developed back then that didn't work out that maybe need to be pulled back, you know, out of our systems, out of our production environments, because they're just not making the revenue impact or the business impact that we wanted them to have. So a little bit of cleaning house is never a bad thing. And, you know, seems like a, a, a relatively good time to do it from a macro standpoint. So long, long way to say yes, we're definitely seeing that right in our client base in the US and are and, and uh, seeing a lot of clients kind of contemplating that and asking those questions about where can we find efficiency and, and cost savings as well.
0: So the next one I've got is a, is a little bit different, but I think it's very topical for right now. You seem to see it read about it a lot in, in like the news. So that is natural language generation. So Marius, I feel like you're raring to go on that one
2: yeah yeah it's it's always good to throw in things which are a bit voguish in technology so anyone who's been following this on twitter is probably going to despair that i bring it up in this sort of context so there's been quite a lot of conversation this year about uh use of ai tooling that that is that generates as opposed to kind of predicts or analyzes And, and the the biggies in this really are things that generate images and things that generate text content with a little prompt. So, you know, you'll say, please tell me a story in the style of Charles Dickens about some IT consultants, and it'll tell you a story in the style of Charles Dickens about IT consultants, if that's the sort of thing you need to get you to go to sleep, which it probably would be given that subject material. And these things have been improving. And I know everyone always says, yeah, these things are always improving, but they've just really in the last six months crossed the line from kind of pretty good, but obvious rough edges to, wow, those edges really are quite hard to see now. And, and why I think this is important is in both that kind of image generation and text generation context. And you know, the, the typical one bandied around there is image tools like MidJourney, if you hear about that, which is remarkable. And I urge you to Google what it can do or GP someone has talked about interchangeably as open AI. Those things have they I think they're hitting the kind of not just there's some pie in the sky use cases, but genuinely have the potential to be useful for organizations to automate essentially the setting out of roughly the right thing to say to be refined by people as opposed to having to have people to set out roughly the right thing to look at or roughly the right thing to say and the big thing for a lot of these ai tools is the barrier to adoption is not necessarily the capability of the underlying model or the technology it's how accessible is it to enterprise and that's also suddenly got over this last period massively interesting so Uh, I know I've witted on about this for a while just now, but I think 2023, I I think that excitement is going to translate into adoption in a way that even though there's been quite a lot of powerful stuff out there in 2022, I think my my hunch is particularly in organizations which are not the kind of super bleeding edge adopters with you know, lots of PhD scientists. It's them who are going to start looking at this stuff and going, okay, this could really change my business. Uh, I don't know, John, You, you obviously, I, I know you guys work with quite a lot of organizations where you've already done this fairly cutting edge AI stuff. If you already? Is this all old news? And I'm just uh, taking a very enterprisey UK view of the world.
1: No, I don't think it is. I, you know, I think there's there's a spectrum there, right? And I think a lot of organizations, a lot of large organizations, are, are still contemplating how they're how they're going to use this to their advantage. You know, I, I, I think if if I look ahead, I think there that there are two there are two directions right that that this is likely to to take. Right? One is very positive, I think, in terms of Mary. So, like what you said a minute ago about about creating roughly or about, about roughly the right way to say the say things to the right people and i think that with natural language generation you can do that very very rapidly and you can do it in like every language in the world right and reach a very wide set of people a much wider audience than than you could possibly ever target in the past right with your with your content with your message that's that's one of the positive you know outcomes here but you know on the on the cautionary side it can also be weaponized and and used you know i think in lots of nefarious ways whether we're talking commerce or geopolitical situations right you know so, so So I think it's one that that is likely to develop frankly in both of those directions rapidly
2: i think yeah that that last point and it's always really tricky to balance the optimism side with the pessimism on these we're all used to on the whole pretty unsophisticated scam emails that's gonna get a lot harder and the other thing is kind of inevitably comes up in any discussion about something that has been trained on a large body of knowledge is the extent to which it has inherited the biases of that body of knowledge so you know these these tools and while they have made you know significant steps forward in avoiding some of the generated content saying things that are you know grossly offensive racist discriminatory inciting violence they can still be angled towards it. They will still make assumptions you know, about ethnicity, about gender. And we do always, I think it's back to that kind of human in the loop thing. The more you rely on this stuff, the more you need to be really vigilant as to whether it just risks perpetuating biases that are themselves problematic. So, I mean, I sort of choose to remain optimistic, but definitely the sort of equity impact of these tools still needs to be really approached with caution, especially when they are so sophisticated that actually for most folk, most consumers of the tools themselves who are still technologists you're
0: not going to be able to understand really what it does in any great detail so for organizations i'm just wondering what would be an obvious application of natural language generation for for example one of our clients like a large organization how would they apply natural language generation would it be things like marketing campaigns for example they'd use that to do like ad copy for example or very highly personalized emails at scale do you see that being being an obvious one or is there something that even more so
1: I think that's a fairly obvious one. It's massive amounts of copy. You're talking massive amounts of copy to, to get your message to the right people, right? Targeted content to the right audiences in, again, multiple languages or hundreds hundreds and hundreds of languages potentially. So, yeah, lots of value there, I think, for many of our clients
2: one thing um, Vince Yates our chief data scientist did is an awesome demo so because we do some investigation of these sorts of technologies we had the model ourselves and were able to do some experimentation with it earlier this year before it became available that content side of things becomes really powerful when you start thinking about how you might personalize a message you know at the minute you might see some content which says like hey you look like you're interested in retirement homes because you're aged between 55 and 60 and live in the southeast England area well that's not really you know that stuff doesn't really float but imagine you're a hotel operator and this was the demo we did and you can say what you know is someone is interested in animals and they want to stay in London and you can put something out so you can prompt it saying produce some copy for someone who is interested in animals to stay in our hotel near Regents Park or something and it'll go if you're interested in coming to London and you love animals you should absolutely stay in our flagship hotel because it's really near the zoo and that stuff I think will be you know or someone's interested in restaurants stay here because
0: it's near the all these great restaurants that stuff will be really very powerful. I think it's quite interesting as well. I don't want to go too too far off on a tangent on this one, but I think it's really funny that we're getting to a world where natural language generation is is becoming so advanced that it can do so much when it's got the right data, but we're also heading forward into a world where getting data from people, customers, consumers online is getting steadily harder because of various data privacy regulations, whether that's legislatory like GDPR or the CCPA or PECA um or you know ios's att do you see that that natural language generation technology is going to get hampered by a lack of freely available data or data that can be collected from consumers online but at the same time when it does have that data it can do all these amazing things how do you see that kind of these things are going almost in opposite directions
1: i'll take a crack at it so so i think anonymizing the da- that data is key before you feed it into the mod, in, in, into the models, right? To train to train things like natural language processing, right? We have to make sure that we're doing that in a in a way that um, that conforms right to all the various regulations that you just mentioned. And it's really just good hygiene, right? And good treatment of our of our customers' data. So that's my initial thinking is that very clear strategy around how we anonymize and how we and how we cleanse that data and remove any uh, try try to remove bias as much as possible right to to, to Mary's point from those data sets is extremely important
2: i do it's an interesting and <laughs> all the reason like pause now this is a really good question. I think what we're seeing is a it is a bit of an arms race between organizations which have a commercial interest in protecting privacy as well not not just obviously there's the legislative angle which you mentioned which is interesting because it, as it divides the world into areas that have these regimes and, and don't but also vendors who have all the first party data themselves and therefore of course it's in their interest to make it harder for others to take it and you know apple's security stuff is great for them as well as for people's privacy but i i think you know one of the things we saw when we were over at uh, AWS reInvent in Las Vegas a couple of weeks ago was more technologies emerging to make some of this stuff easier and to make all organizations more able to share and work with data in a way that does protect people. So things like clean rooms, things like identity resolution services, which can let you understand your customers without de-identifying them, essentially, I think will make make it easier to apply some of these models and to, you know, for organisations to cooperate between them to build a consistent picture without relying on these one or two platforms that just know everything about you, and it's certainly interesting. And I think, you know, again, next year, we'll see probably more adoption of that, I mean, more generally, I don't know about you, John, but I've, we seem to have gone from a 2022 in which kind of data architectures and what you can do with data were really interesting to 2023, looking like the year of governing data for success being really valuable. I know governance isn't the thing that necessarily everyone gets excited about, but it's, that's becoming almost the, I don't know, the thing that is
0: enabling or not of people using data the way they want to. I think that's a really interesting topic. Absolutely. I'm, I'm actually really interested to see if we do this with this podcast next year, where the, where natural language generation will be by that point, because it's coming on leaps and bounds. John, I think this next one's for you. So what do you think about organizations moving away from large JavaScript frameworks for front end?
1: So this is a uh, a fun one. I feel like in some ways it's it's back to my roots as a developer, right? Back to uh, the early 2000s timeframe. But I think there there is you know a recognition that SPAs, right? Single page applications aren't always the right tool for the job in every case. And they can be a great tool for the job, um, depending on what you're building. If you're building a very data-driven app or you're building something that's behind a firewall, likely a very good choice, right? But there are some real complexities and some real downfalls to, to selecting a, a single page architecture as your default. Search engine optimization, right, can can rear its ugly head, um, you know, so can things like like page load times, like initial page load times, right, get really, really challenging when you're strict, you know, when you're very, very heavy JavaScript. So, so I think I see us moving toward, you know, more of a hybrid mode again, right, where there's, cert, you know, a good amount of server-side rendering involved where we're able to do that and and you know kind of get the optimization or get the efficiency of of rendering pages rendering markup on the server but you know combine that with with kind of modern modern javascript frameworks that you know that allow you to to go and fetch just the dynamic bits in a much more efficient way thinking about approaches like hotwire for example that are that are unlocking some of those capabilities i think for a new generation right of folks who maybe weren't around doing ajax calls in 2004 when i was
2: it is fun- It is funny that it's always tricky with these, isn't it? Because you sort of rapidly feel like a bit of an old fart when you say, oh, yeah, well, that's exactly the same as this other thing I did. Except it kind of is, you know, everything old is new again. I think, you know, the techniques you mentioned, John, where with hot wire. Well, it's it's not surprising, I guess, that some of these things are coming back when you let's look at a bit of the mess we got ourselves into with spas and it's funny when uh, and all credit to the organizations who do a fantastic job of producing radars for this and charts like you know, infoq and thoughtworks and others a lot of it boils down to did organizations all just go in on some of these very complex or i guess ever more complex javascript front-end frameworks like angular and react because it was voguish you know this is always the challenge with it it's the next bet you know it's always the next big thing and suddenly that area gets really bloated and painful as anyone who's you know ever tried to do complex dependency management or has had to switch java build tools about javascript rather build tools every few months as new ones get released it's you know the cost of of implementing some of these has been huge and and what we're seeing we're seeing things come back that in some ways are a bit simpler and a bit lighter weight and you know to john's point make seo work better but also there's, there's an interesting bit for me around things that work better where people aren't running the latest and greatest smartphones with really high quality mobile connections. you know some of these apps, if you've ever tried to load them while on a spotty train service, there's a reason some of that stuff still feels really, really slow. so I'm, I'm hoping we I'm hoping what we don't all do is you know rush back to the other side of the boat and bin everything that's in react and angular and go all in on like turbo stimulus and statically hosted html in s3 buckets but something tells me maybe is is the grim one for 2023 john that what we're going to all do is rebuild a load of stuff we built a few years ago the way we built it 10 years ago i don't know
1: maybe so but you know i i think it's also you know there's an element of of making sure that we train people to use the right tool for the job right i think there's you know frankly a lot of engineers out there who are front end engineers who who know no other way than to use react or to use you know javascript framework jour to build their apps to build their front ends so maybe it comes back to uh, to us again right the ones with gray hair to make sure that folks are you know getting you know a really good variety right of of uh, exposure to you know different approaches to solving the same problem
2: It's funny because that's probably, that's the second time we've we've had sort of said that on, even on this podcast, when you look at things like serverless, you know, it's so easy in our industry to get distracted by the next exciting squirrel and actually just sitting back and understanding why you're picking a thing and whether it's right is, uh, unfortunately, that doesn't sort of go away really.
1: Yeah. When you're under time pressure to deliver. Right. I think that's a big, that's a big concern too. Right. Or a big factor.
2: And you've got the people with the skills you've got who who are obviously going to want to
0: use those skills to help you solve a problem. So my next one is definitely for you, Marius, because I know that you said this. What have I set myself up for? <laughs> this is a throwback to tech trends of 2022. And we've also seen it come back for 2023. So it's already made its return. Talk to me about data mesh. Oh, boy.
2: Right. So... Unlike last year, where I I wasted an awful amount of time explaining uh, what the concept is, uh, I would strongly encourage you either to listen to that podcast, if I haven't said that already, or better still, to uh, read Jean-Marc Tagani's excellent article on data mesh, which tells you far more eloquently than I possibly could what it's all about. So you might ask, why is it on 2023? Uh, we've done a bit of it in 2021. We've been doing it through 2022. And so is this a trend when it's already happening? I guess so in the sense that organizations are still moving towards this the you know, the data mesh architectural pattern. But maybe with some differences now, like a lot of things, people have understood it a bit better. There's some more real world examples of tangibly built ones out in the wild and people understanding where they are or are are more or less appropriately used. So interestingly, I think one thing we're going to see two trends at once, we're going to see places that didn't need something as heavyweight as that pattern, (laughs) rolling it back, we're going to see large organisations where it genuinely is applicable, continuing to invest in it. And I think we'll increasingly see opinionated, kind of pre-canned, realized architectures, i.e. with the actual technologies that are applicable, becoming a bit more common. The other thing I think was really interesting, so I went to a couple of sessions about it, again, while I was at the reInvent conference, and one thing that has emerged from this is actually really how hard it is to make all the governance and management side of things line up. It all works okay in theory, but Back to my other point about maybe data governance being the bigger trend to watch out for and that you know now being seen as the number one priority even for quite technology-minded organizations i think it kind of goes hand in hand with that you know how can you be successful with a distributed mesh setup unless you're properly set up when it comes to understanding how your data is being used Who's got access to it? How the security controls are managed around it? How you enable and disable that access across essentially kind of distributed architecture? Yeah, it's quite it's quite interesting. I think I don't know you you John, what what's how have you seen it this year?
1: I think you you covered it well, and you probably have uh, a bit better insights right than I do in this area. But I will say, I think that your your governance. T- uh, point is really, really interesting and really important, right? And not something that we had to deal with. Certainly not at the level that you that you do with a with a data mesh in the in the traditional approach, right? So you know when all of our data was centralized in a warehouse or in a data lake, it was. A lot easier, I think, to to rationalize who has access to that, and because it's all centralized, right? It's all in one place. We can define a set of policies around it, and so as you distribute that out across an organization, it becomes that orders of magnitude harder to define what your policies are and then who's going to enforce them, right? How do we do that practically? I think that that is a very large challenge for, for organizations that are looking to move in that direction, really, and not different from any distributed architecture, right, you, have to, you really have to, to think about those things up front and make sure that it's built into your pipelines, to your approaches, to your deployment tooling, et cetera.
0: I'm gonna give this next one to you, John, if that's okay. So what do you think for 2023, where do you see cloud-based development coming out?
1: Cloud-based development. Um, so, I think tooling has come has come a long way. You know, if you look at you know things like Cloud Nine, like Eclipse Chi, right? I think there is you know, there are there are a lot of advantages, especially if you are building a cloud-native solution. Going back to our first topic, I believe, right? If you're already there and you're deploying into public cloud, there's there's a lot of reasons to use either their native tool sets or or a combination of you know, of other things, makes deployment easier, right? You start to eliminate the works on my machine, but doesn't work in your environment problem that comes up a lot. I think so. So I think there's a lot of promise, and I think we will see a lot of organizations moving in that direction from a security standpoint. It makes a lot of sense, right? I don't have data and code floating around on laptops going through airports, people's homes, etc. I think the one cautionary tale here is it, it doesn't necessarily always have an immediate cost saving component. I think if you just look at the raw numbers, how much does it cost to develop kind of in a in a traditional mode versus you know, versus using a cloud-based IDE or a cloud-based development environment? It's probably going to be more expensive to go from A to B initially. So again, it's important to look at outcomes. Are we able to get to market faster? Are we able to improve quality? Because we're not dealing with differences between a development environment, a test environment, a production environment, right? Those are all much more standardized and much more automated how we provision them. So again, I think it's going to be, the organizations that are able to see that value in terms of time to market, in terms of reducing the cost of delay, in terms of higher quality, that are going to accelerate toward those kind of techniques. Marius, I don't know what you guys are seeing over there, but I'd love to hear your thoughts.
2: Yeah, we're, we're seeing a very similar thing. And it's interesting, the kind of pressures that are driving it. One of them is the security point that John mentioned is really important. Security is an ever moving target and newer accreditation standards like the ones we ourselves are held to. So things like Cyber Essentials, ISO 27001, you can't kind of just do it once and sit back and relax for, for, for ever and a day. You've, you're always being asked to improve your posture and, and the bar's being changed or raised rather, and it is getting increasingly difficult in line with those standards to argue for high-powered machines. To John's point, it's certainly not about cost. It probably is cheaper to give someone a really high-powered laptop and have them have it for a year. For accounting gurus out there, it also is really helpful to have something which is an asset you can depreciate if, you're, if you care about such things. But some of those other benefits we are, we haven't, so it's worth saying. I haven't yet seen one of our customers move to this model yet in terms of like wholesale move to it. We're certainly seeing organizations experiment with the model. We ourselves are experimenting with this model because there are a ton of advantages to how quickly you can roll out, get people effective, do things in a secure way and manage essentially an effective environment. There's some interesting wrinkles like quality of internet connection. So that's another thing which might cause someone to think twice. But on the flip side, with the world and the workplace having changed so much, actually, when everyone's remote, do you really want potentially very valuable corporate information? Granted, you've got device encryption, all that stuff. But do you want for every person you've got all of the pain of managing a laptop, shipping them back and forth when they don't work? Maybe not. Maybe just something simpler where you can have tens of thousands in stock and just swap them out when it's gone and know that the person then has a really high powered, consistent cloud hosted environment. You, You can see why it's tempting. The people.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree. And let's be frank, right? There's still a severe labor shortage in our industry. I saw a, a statistic recently: uh, eight hundred thousand open jobs in you know the broader technology industry here here in the U.S. So that's engineers, data scientists operations folks, right, all in, 800,000 jobs, I think 300,000 or so were engineers. So, you know, it's really valuable to be able to get that constrained group of folks busy quickly because turnover is going to happen. Salaries continue to increase, I think, across the board. And so, you know, organizations need to look at knowing that that's going to happen. How do we drive the most efficiency in in our development workflows? And this is one tool in the tool belt worth considering.
0: It's funny actually, and, and correct me if I'm, I'm wrong here. I, I don't feel like cloud-based development is a particularly new concept. Like it's been around for a, you know at least a few years. Um, so for it to be you know a hot trend of of 2023, and are you, you both of you have mentioned just now reasons why why it is now popular. But do you think is it more about the security element or? Could it be now that we're remote working is there particular reason in, that you think it is now so big because organizations have always wanted to be secure that's that's nothing new but why is it now that cloud-based development can can give them that layer of security that they couldn't before or is it more about that remote working thing what do you think what do you think of that
2: i wonder whether it's a combina- kind of a combination of all of the above you know context is always really important in these things and you know we talked a bit about what organizations did during the pandemic and now we're now you know in many ways out the other side of it obviously not, not consistently and not not for everyone and now people are starting to kind of look at how they do things and do the kind of second order consequences of that uh, and it's worth saying uh, uh, my my gut on why is why haven't we seen more of it sooner is just the nature of hardware refresh if you've got assets that you're using that people can use for engineering that there isn't quite the same like burning need to move to these worlds but when you look at the, you know when you start to add all of it together and you're questioning am I going to do my next refresh I think that's what when we'll start to see this and, and as said, this may be one of the ones where we're on the trends call in 2024 and go well they got that one
0: really wrong didn't they <laughs> oh well I look forward to, to finding out Mario so I have to wait for another year for that one so I have only one more that I would like to post to you both for tech trends of 2023 before we, we take a look back. Um, and that is, what do you think about the rise in 2023 of long lasting hybridity, which is a great word, by the way, uh, specifically like hybrid cloud? I've probably got a given. I
2: think I uh, thought this was something that might happen. I should probably have something to say about it. Um, so why why is this why do i think this is a trend for 2023 there's a few reasons and it, it actually relates to a load of things we've discussed actually it's a, it's a good one to um to talk about later in later in the in this podcast simply because so many elements we've kind of covered so if you look at all the things going on in the world and you look at what we've talked about around organizations adopting serverless for new stuff. But is that really appropriate for some of the bits of the organization that don't need it? When you look at cloud based development tooling, when you look at novel data architectures, but people are now finding that they're not necessarily appropriate. And then you look at the other thing we talked about where it's cost saving versus transformational work, what we're what we have seen in 2022. And I think therefore, why this kind of refined posture is going to be quite a dominant one in 2023, is those huge multi-year cloud migration transformation journeys are starting to not become a kind of complete house move. It's more, you kind of keep the bits of the old house you like, and you keep the bits of the new house you like, and you kind of learn to live with both. We've seen this happen in a couple of our clients. And I think where previously, organizations have kind of been nervous about the idea of perpetuating a scenario in which they have the world they've came from and they've got and they have the world they're moving to. I think what we're seeing is increasing comfort that actually because they've been operating in this wild for this guys for a few years, they can keep doing so and actually maybe it's the right answer at least for a while. Clearly there's some big cloud vendors for whom that's probably not the outcome they necessarily want, but actually If you're looking at what's right for an organization, I think this may well be the world we're in for a a good while yet, which is not what we'd have said a few years ago. John, have you seen the same in some of your clients?
1: Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, you, you mentioned the big cloud vendors just a moment ago i think that's an interesting topic you know i think clearly they're recognizing this right they're they're you know they're seeing this trend and they're trying to answer it with very industry specific bespoke capabilities right look at uh, some of the marketing tools for example that that amazon just just announced at reinvent this past year right i think we're going to see a proliferation of that in an attempt to capture as much market share as possible or to retain as much market share as possible so yeah it'll be interesting as as, as those industry specific capabilities start to start to get broader and a larger portfolio of those how does that impact our architectures and our approaches to project portfolios
0: cool yeah absolutely thank you for that, john so i think just to, before we close out i just wanted to revisit a couple of marius's predictions from 2022 because i'd love to get his thoughts on were you were you right. Were they hot in 2022? Will they be hot in 2023? It's, it's a good question and I want to know from you, Marius. So we've already spoke about data mesh, obviously you've, you spoke about that. And the fact that it's in our list for 2023 probably speaks volumes, but was data mesh in 2022 what you expected it to be? And where it is now, is that where you expected it to be?
2: uh so no i don't think data mesh is i think when i said data mesh i think uh like all people infused about new ways of doing things i thought we were going to see it everywhere and i think the lesson of this year is we're seeing it increasingly only in the places where it matters and with you know as we've talked a bit about governance where organizations have the maturity to put in place all the automation to deploy which i think you know john john talked about and also the maturity to govern it so you know did i give myself enough wiggle room to say i was right oh, just about maybe but you know if i'm if i'm honest i was i was being i think i was being a bit optimistic
0: well i mean it it can't be all be all be bad if it is still around at least it didn't completely die a death it's still it still has its place even if it is only in, in certain areas it's
2: st- it it's still on the radars i'll chalk it up other people you know it's people are still
0: talking about it uh, so John, last year Marius said on on this exact podcast, but for twenty twenty two, that he believed that the adoption of artificial intelligence and machine learning would take off in the year of twenty twenty two. Where do you sit on his assessment from a year ago?
1: Oh my! Uh, so since I wasn't involved in Marius's assessment a year ago, I'll kind of riff on that topic. So so I think we're seeing a deeper penetration of of AI and ML into some into some more. Um, operational areas of business, for example, right? So it's not always the, necessarily the sexy use cases anymore, right? Where where those technologies are applying. I'm thinking about things like like IT operations, right? And getting better at understanding how well, you know, how stable is our network? Are we having outages in, in a certain part of our business? Do we need to go proactively get on top of those things, right? And, and And where are we most likely to have those issues occur from a predictive standpoint, right? I think it's, you know, Uh, So I think those, like, trends like that tend to to illustrate a maturity, right, a level of maturity with AI and, you know, ML tools and a democratization of that, right, so that, you know, more and more folks who aren't data scientists and aren't experts in that field are able to take advantage. So I don't know exactly what that says about Marius' prediction from last year, but that's my point of view.
0: What about you, Marius? I can't remember verbatim what you said on last year's podcast, but knowing knowing yourself the way you believed it was going to be this time well now from last year what what do you think if i yeah if i place myself in
2: the shoes i can remember yeah it's an interesting one i so have i've seen plenty of evidence across our clients to suggest that when it comes to tooling and the stuff that makes it easier to work with these technologies kind of as john says Yep, we've seen a number of organizations, including ones, you know, that are in heavily regulated industry and are conservative in in how they use new things, have started adopting it. And I guess importantly, and I probably would have said this time, having these technologies as components of real use cases that drive real outcomes as opposed to kind of toy experimental stuff. Has it, you know, I think so on the tooling, probably I might chalk that one in the success column. I'm not sure we've seen the same I think We've talked a bit about, you know, OpenAI, ChatGPT, stuff like that. Some of that really advanced stuff, I'm not sure we've seen so much this year. Heads it big and the one for next year. I mean, one lesson from this is maybe it takes an awfully long time. So, but, you know, you start talking about a thing, but it's years in the making for it to kind of penetrate the industry completely. And in a sense, you can slightly get, you know, novel trend fatigue because there's a finite number of new
0: things organizations can even adopt no absolutely I, I don't think it's you know from our conversation on natural language generation that like you say the tooling's there the, the technology is coming along nicely it's just does it have long-term application or like i say it's just novel it comes it goes it was a nice idea no one actually really used it for anything long-term or impactful so i think it'd be really interesting to see yeah is this one to say is it one that's actually gonna have real real impact i think we'll have to wait and see on that one
2: one thing I was, you know, I when I listened through from last year and one thing we got quite sort of exercised about was people. And, you know, they said 2022, it's going to be a year where it's still going to be really hard to find the technologists to fill to fill the skills gap. I think, John, did you say what, 800,000 open roles? So, I mean, that's not gone away. Is it a trend if it's just part of the status quo? I don't know. But we still see that challenge in every organization and we see it ourselves. It is still an incredibly competitive market. We think we have really great people and we think we're a place that great, you know, great people would aspire to and want to work at. And we find it hard. So for organizations which are trying to do this at mega scale, it's it's still incredibly difficult. And there's way more to do, you know, throughout not just industry, but also in engagement with education. Engagement with organizations that help people retrain and reskill. That's, you know, in a bid to turn this into a trend, you look at some of the announcements AWS are making around specifically supporting learning initiatives that target people who are not already professionals, so are targeting people in education. Look at the work that we're doing to support schools in building the skills that their students need to be the great consultants of the future that i think that trend of it companies realizing this is not just about trying to do something that helps helps with brand this is really about sustaining the industry we're all part of i think we'll see way more of that across a lot of technology organizations really recognizing how the people aspect requires engagement right the way back even
0: to early years absolutely unfortunately That is all the time we have for today, if you can believe it. But I just want to say massive, massive thank you to you both John and Marius for being on this podcast. I say I found it incredibly interesting and insightful. And I hope to have you both back on the 2024 Take Trends Podcast when that rolls around. Who knows what we'll be talking about at that point? But could be a lot of the same again, we don't know. So and thank you as well to all of our listeners for sticking with us for the hour. And I hope that you found it as interesting and insightful as I did. And Please join us again for another episode of Technically Minded.